0: This week's podcast partner is Nuffield Australia. Applications for the 2025 program close on Friday the 31st of May. It's only a couple of weeks away. If you're looking to select a research topic that will be of use to you, your business, community and industry, and join a global alumni of more than 2,000 people while travelling the world to research that topic, apply for a Nuffield scholarship. Find out more at nuffield.com.au. The Humans of Agriculture weekly podcast is proudly sponsored by LAWD, the specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions. To find out more, head to www.lawd.com.au. This episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast was recorded on the country of the Gulajan people. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We'd like to extend those respects to wherever you're listening to our podcast.
1: I'm not a micromanager. I mean, there's things, I I mean, I probably can't even start the tractor anymore, you know. (laughs) I'm I'm a sheep person, but...
0: Well, g'day, guys. Welcome back to another episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and as always, it's a pleasure to be joining you on my Wednesday morning. My next guest is someone who I've had a heap to do with over nearly the last 20 years, which is crazy. Dave Kinimonth is the manager at Mount Hess. His family's involvement at the property goes back 140 years this year. He's been managing the property for the last 30 or so, and Dave is actually one of the first people who gave me a job in agriculture, as this young city kid, which we cover off pretty early on. It's uh, interesting how your mind plays tricks on you, either my mind or Dave's, but um, now, I don't really remember me being completely useless. Not that he uses those words exactly, but something fairly similar. In our chat today, Dave shares a little bit about his family's history and what it was like transitioning from a family-owned business to then uh, working under the Sudwall Group, who are the world's largest wool millers. Dave initially came on for a three-year stint as a manager during the transition, and 20 years later, at some stage this year, he'll be stepping away. I love how dave talks about his role as a farmer as the custodian of the property we've got some pretty amazing photos which look at what the property looked like in the late 80s early 2000s and then more recently in 2019 and i can tell you he has certainly looked after the environment his people and the business and it's all being left in a better place than when he started i hope you guys enjoy this chat i really just love the privilege to be able to sit down with dave chat for a little while and um, talk with someone who's been a real mentor and influential in my career in agriculture. Enjoy the chat. Now Dave um, you're someone who I've really wanted to have on the podcast for a little while so I think exciting. I've talked about you a few different times because I was a young 12 year old over at Alistair My Uncle's and um, you called up and needed a set of hands and you're kind of the first person who gave this kid from Sydney a go on, on the farm so thank you.
1: It's not a problem at all and welcome back to Mount Hess.
0: It's great to be back.
1: I do remember um, the skinny little, th- oh, I thought you were 13 or 14 but... I could have been 18 Skinny well. little fella, yeah, very shy and you're not like that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> was I shy? You're a little bit shy, yeah. I I Most shy. kids are when they're approaching you know, somebody they don't know very well and can right. work on a big farm with lots of people. And,
0: and had no idea what I was doing, so... Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Lots of training. You're a quick learner. That was fine. Oh, that's good. Good quality to have. Tell me, um, we've had a bit of a look around, but you, can you run us through a bit of a history of your time here at Mount Hess and how it's been involved in your family as well?
1: Yeah. Um, my great grandfather came out at, at the age of 18 to uh, work for the Russell family from Golf Hill. They'd, they had a property called Barina Plains. And um, he. Took a took a part ownership in Bruna Plains and eventually saved up en- enough money by the age of fifty-one to buy the next door pro- property, which was Mount Hess. That was around about sixteen thousand acres at that stage. He also thought that he was mature enough and um, uh, had enough means to get married, so he went back to Scotland, found a twenty-two-year-old bride and bought a home and had one son and six daughters, so I'm descended from the one son um, and he, he, my grandfather ran the property for probably 30 years, my father ran the property for 35 years and then I took over in 1989 which was a fantastic year to take over. My old man did the big handball and of course the wool price col- scheme collapsed and um, sheep were worth nothing and wool was worth very little and our income went down to about a third of what it had been. So I was forced to let off some staff and their families and, of course, I knew all the kids and that that was not a great thing for a young person and there was a lot of other people in the same boat. Uh, A lot of the big farms in the Western District, um, you know, pretty much ran on a shoestring for quite a long time after that. Um, So in 2002... Uh, actually, before my father died in around about 2000, we decided, the trustees of the estate had decided to sell the farm and it was sold in 2002 to the Stager family who owned Sudwalla, which is the world's largest wool spinner. And uh, I was asked to stay on for three years uh, because they wouldn't buy it otherwise. They had no idea of how to run a farm. And that was 20 years ago. And it's been a fantastic experience. And you've seen the photos of when I started in 1986, uh, the photo was taken in 1986 to today, and it's uh, a magnificent transformation. I'm very proud of what we've done, and you know, as a team of all the people who've worked for me over the years, and uh, very happy to be finishing up this year, which will be coincide with 140 years of the Caninlod family on Mount Hess. Wow,
0: well, with a big party or just a.
1: Uh, we hope to have a big party in October, November and it's a bit warmer. Yeah, fair enough. Even though I've left, it's, um, you know, hopefully Klaus will come over for that. He can't at the moment with COVID, et
0: is it um Is it bittersweet or do you look at, I think we'll share the photos, but you look back at those photos, it's a hell of a transformation in the last 30 or so years.
1: It's, it is a little bit bittersweet, but it's sort of, I feel as if um, I'm leaving the property in a way better state than when I took it on and, you know, I think if most farmers think that way, they will have uh, they will have had a pretty fantastic life. Yeah. And so I'm, but I'm moving to work with my son, who we've been fortunate enough to be able to buy our own properties over the years. Um, and he will be he runs about four thousand acres now. So, with a bit of lease country and country we own, we hope to build that up to sort of eight or nine thousand in the next few years with both of us working hard at it. So, But my passion's been Mount Hess and most of my friends know that and, um, you know, that's coming to an end.
0: So. I want to ask you on that. When you guys transitioned the business out of your family and, and you started managing for someone else, have you always treated it like it was your own property?
1: Always, yeah.
0: Was it ever hard to do that as a as the manager, knowing that one day you were going to have to go through succession and hand, it, hand the, the keys on to someone else?
1: Not really. I, I see uh, I see farmers as custodians of the land for the next generation. So I've always thought that way. So I, I would have been I would have been unhappy ten years ago leaving the property. Mm-hmm. I'm very happy leaving it now.
0: That's a pretty great place to be in. It?
1: It's a it's a fant- yeah. I'm I've been a happy farmer. So that's uh,
0: yeah. Tell me, Dave, flicking the clock back, a young David growing up here at Mount Hess, What were what were you like as a kid and what were some of your earliest memories uh, here on the property?
1: Very earliest memories are me carrying the radio for my father when he was fencing and my sister carrying the bucket of staples because <laughs> the radio was heavier than the bucket of staples. <laughs> um, probably the next one was all of all of the jobs and I've heard on quite a few of your podcasts and other people's podcasts that um, the earliest memory of people my age is that their parents um, rostered all of the, the major jobs when their kids were home from school. And so riding over to Moogatook, which was the first little block my father bought outside of Mount Hess, riding over to the shearing with my sister on the back of the step through Honda and the over for the shearers. This is at sort of seven o'clock in the morning. And my father on the way, on the way home the night before had killed a snake and called it up to give us a scare when we opened the gate. <laughs> it was too early for us. We missed the snake. And at smoking time, he got back to the shed and said, you little buggers. <laughs> he got the fright. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but most holi- most holidays, most weekends were working with my parents. We'd, he would stop and have a, um, a barbecue and he'd always have a beer. And, you know, it was he tried to make the weekends fun for us all. But it was actually quite – he was actually achieving things.
0: And it yeah. probably instilled quite a work ethic in you, which I'm sure we're going to get to.
1: Yeah, it, he did. And and my son's got it. My brother, my sister, you know, our whole family's got that sort of same let's get it, get out there and get it done. Probably probably the next um, memories are being at – I decided very early on I was going to be a farmer. So it, I went to Geelong Graham, I went to Timber Top – and I'd, we had to write letters home and I, I think I wrote more letters to other farmers trying to get a job when I to school. <laughs> so, uh, yes, yeah, so, and they, re- they replied. Some said they could, some said they couldn't. And I ended up working for Keith Urquhart at Boonera at Hexham who was, for his time, a really outstanding farmer. He, ha- he was one of the only farmers I knew at that stage who used a consultant to help with um, planning and, and operational aspects of the farm. And also a bit of a fun time up in Queensland with the Winter Irving family at Yakamunda Station, which was four hundred square miles and ten thousand breeders and a lot of fun. Was
0: there was there a purpose behind going up there? Was
1: to get to get away. To get away and grow up a bit and see see what sort of person I was.
0: Yeah. What did um, you what did you learn?
1: I probably learnt that um, I had made the right decision to go into farming, that um it probably wouldn't matter what I did, I would enjoy it. Like, I really enjoyed the cattle work up there. Um, I really w- enjoyed working for Keith, who had a Hereford stud, um, you know, grooming all the bulls, leading them. Um, he had fantastic horses, learnt to ride really well with, the, with Helen, his daughter. We had to st- – at the sale, we had to, I had to stand on top of the horse and crack a whip either side of it, you know, in a little ring – you know, jump on, jump over its back and crawl all, crawl between its legs and all that sort of stuff. There was, that was really fantastic. Broke a horse in, in one day for Glen Ormiston, um, wow. you know, with Keith. It was a really great learning experience.
0: The horses didn't follow you south?
1: I bought a horse and a motorbike. <laughs> I never rode the horse. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've never stopped riding motorbikes. <laughs> yeah.
0: Tell me, one thing I've always wondered with you, Dave, um, and I know you've got a few different passions outside the farm, gate. You said you made the decision that you were going to go farming. What would you? What do you think you'd be doing if you weren't farming?
1: Um, I was quite interested in business, so probably I had a few mates that went in to stop working. And, uh, and I nearly sort of... We had a few issues when I was about 30, sort of with my parents and succession and all that sort of stuff. So I nearly did... Um, but couldn't quite get across the line, but probably stockbroking or something like that.
0: I know you're a big believer in further education and the importance of it, but you never had the chance to study at uni. Is that something which you kind of look back and and wish you'd had, or do you think you managed to make the best of the situation and get on with it?
1: I think I managed to make the best of the situation. However, I can see that time spent at university or, or Marcus Oldham where you... Get to develop a friendship group, which are outside of your local zone, has been you know pretty pretty beneficial to most of my mates that actually went to Marcus Oldham or Glen Ormiston or um, and I missed out on that sort of friendship group. Not that I haven't got sort of acquaintances of fri- and friends from all over Australia, but yeah, um, that's been developed o- over
0: time. Because you you were thrown into the management here fairly young, weren't you? You, you mentioned before you. Your old man passed away and you were throwing the keys. Not There were there were difficult decisions along the way, but then you were left to, to run the farm nearly overnight, weren't you?
1: Well, it wasn't quite like that. My father was the one that was that was handed the reins over. He was 21 and um, had 18 employees. His wow. father died and at his deathbed said, you know, ask Peter to take over, ask the trustees, you know, to appoint him. And that was... I think that was a bit too young. Yeah. You know, he didn't have a chance to sort of get out and enjoy himself and although he, he did go to New Zealand, went to Massey for six months. And However, for myself, I had pretty good apprenticeship to a pretty good operator and I was ready, you know, when I took over, no doubt about it. I put forward a plan, which actually getting back to when I was 30, I put forward a plan to my father and to the trustees of the estate about how we c- should move to a, a later lambing and get out of autumn lambing into a sort of late winter lambing change to a split carving for you know late winter for the cattle and introduce a few different species of, of pastures and a bit of cropping and anyway my father took umbrage at that and um, and what happened when I was 30 he decided that he wouldn't have me go into business with him so... That was a fantastic thing because it made me go out and lease country and have a crack myself. So that's allowed me to, you know, build up a share portfolio and buy land and lease land. And really learn how the how the business really works.
0: That um, so that was the beginning of you running businesses on the side of kind of the day job, wasn't it? Which has been a big part of your yeah. career.
1: So I was pretty much running Mount Hiss is nearly nine thousand acres. Running Mount Hess during the day and then. Uh, on weekends um, running the other properties. I, rem- I remember Aunt Bailey, we, we were in a bus doing a tour of Mount Hess and we'd go past one of my properties and the, the, the guy was spraying, we, the contractor was spraying and he said, now David, what's he spraying? And I said, oh, I've got no idea. The agronomist sends an email to Brad Thompson at, at Landmark. He then sends an email to, uh, she also sends one to the contractor the chemical gets dropped off, they spray the paddocks. I don't know what it should be sprayed with. I don't know when it should be sprayed. They just go and do it. And, you know, and, I, and I've taken that attitude to things I'm not really on top of uh, for most of my life.
0: Was that something that just came to you naturally? Or was it like a very conscious decision that there are things that you needed to spend your energy worrying about and making decisions around or, and things that didn't it f- matter?
1: It first started with Keith Urquhart. Keith, when he started Burner, had two paddocks when the creek was up and one paddock when it was down. So he had a tough gig and built it up to be a magnificent farm, but he did it with the help of others. And I think if you ask any successful person, they've never done it on their own. It's with, with, uh, with knowledge from people who are better at doing things than themselves. You know. So, I, yeah, I took that on pretty early. I did a course in 1992, I think it was 1992, 93. Uh, grazing for profit with um, RCS, and it's amazing li- listening to some podcasts. There's a lot of pretty good operators who have done the same course, yeah. and what it did for me, having not been to Marcus Oldham, was gave us a pretty pretty praised overall view of efficiently managing an operation, taking into account the environment, the people you work with, and the business that runs on it, and. And if we let any of those down, you know, we were going to fall over. And and I took it on board pretty seriously. And in 1994, we put every um, every movement of stock, every time we bought uh, chemicals, drenches, everything went onto a computer with Paddock Action Manager, and I still use it. And that has allowed us today to, if we sign up to a quality assurance scheme, it It takes us about two hours to do the accreditation and the assessors will tell us that it sometimes takes days and revisits to get other people on board. And and a prime example of that was selling through... We sold contracts through New Zealand Merino. To be with New Zealand Merino, you have to be on mules and and they have a very similar accreditation scheme to RWS. And when we sold our wool in uh, at the last sale, Lamb's Wool, we were paid pretty close to two dollars a kilo greasy over the market it always used to be about a dollar fifty to well, it has been in the past being rws accredited about a dollar fifty to a dollar clean this year there's a lot more demand and there's a lot of brands out there chasing it so and of course south africas they can't sell any wool at the moment so that's helped and there a lot of them are rws
0: There's kind of three avenues I want to touch on off the back of that. So the first thing you started to allude to was around the importance of your teamwork as this business side, which really is a fundamental pillar of what you guys do. And then the other part is kind of some of the different systems and processes and how technologies aided you guys. So I think we're starting off. I I, want to ask around the importance of team and, and building a team around you, both on farm and outside the farm gate. Was this, was it trial and error? How did you, identify the the people you wanted to work with
1: there's a little bit of trial and error yeah we tried to target people who were good at what what they were doing that was pretty simple and then with the consultants it was the ones that were sort of leading edge thinking outside the box for instance a a really a classic was raised beds Mm -hmm. you know the, the bruce wilson next door was one of the instigators david langley um the peels there's a few people in our local area that um, we're very innovative, and and I've always let them do the first year or two, and then if it seems pretty a pretty good option to us, we go ahead. Yeah, so that's that's sort of how we've done it. Same with livestock, for instance, when when Merino Select came in, we had we had our we were breeding our own rams, and I and I always thought that somebody else could do it better than me. And with Merino Select, we were able to find the breeders who are using a lot of data to make decisions and we did a big trial on the place and des- and decided to go with Centre Plus. It came out sort of on top and we've been there ever since and it's been a really fantastic um, – so we've got a great relationship. This year we actually helped change their direction of breeding because we buy straight after the owners of Centre Plus select their rams. Yep. Um, so – yeah, those sort of those sort of associations and things are really really important.
0: And in terms of the team itself, it's something. So, which
1: so our team, as a as a manager, I just see myself as helping the people that work for me achieve the goals we set at the start of the year. So, um, I'm not a micromanager. I mean, there's, there's things. I, I mean, I probably can't even start the tractor anymore. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm a sheep person, but. But realistically, I I'm, I'm ne- remember talking to Marcus Campbell who was with us for 13 or 14 years. He's gone out on his own now. Um, but he, he had a, a screen in the tractor. I, I knew there was a GPS screen but this other screen I wasn't. I said, what's that? And he said, so it's actually a television. <laughs> and he was a bit embarrassed about it. Because of, anyway, so uh, the, um, the use of technology has been pretty important too.
0: And, and you guys have done that from the beginning, was that...?
1: Pretty much, yeah. A lot of these things are quite expensive when you get into them, but I, I sort of... It's pretty basic, and you've heard me talk about it before, but if you do the sum on the back of an envelope and it works, it will always work. If you, if you do the sums on the back of an envelope and it doesn't work and then you go back to the office to try and make it work, it'll definitely fail. So for those things, the introduction of raised beds, the, the GPS on the tractors... Um, you know remote sensing and all that they all make sense pretty quickly it's you've just got to bite the
0: bullet. because we were chatting about it in the paddock just before but well, the one thing that you've seen has been the most instrumental in getting the property to where it is today and your answer is pretty interesting
1: well it's I, and i think a lot of
0: this week's podcast sponsor are our friends over at boarding schools expo Amanda and her team for more than 20 years have been bringing boarding schools closer to the places that people call home. Over 15,000 children have met their future boarding school at one of their events. At the end of June, they're hosting an event in Wagga. So if you're keen or know someone who might, head to their website boardingexpo.com.au to find out more. People my age would probably say the same,
1: but for me it was the introduction of of a, you know, a computer you could use at home the second one was the internet and the third one is you know handheld um, devices which are just unbelievable and we we use we use our phones for a lot of stuff all of the recordings on our phone we use whatsapp to to record um any everybody else on the farm are my eyes and ears Mm -hmm. so when i'm making decisions i rely on them and for little things and even bigger things, we have a WhatsApp where people can post anything. We have a direct link WhatsApp to the agronomist. So the young guys, we've got two ex, two young guys who just finished their apprenticeship eighteen months ago, plumbing apprenticeship. You know, it could be on 85, 90 grand with a you know, working six seven hours a day. They're on the farm and loving it and want to make careers of it. Um, so it, for them to have a direct link to me, the um, the agronomist, it's and everybody else on the farm, it's been fantastic. Whereas, you know, if you go back 20 years ago, you'd go up to the boss and say, look, what do you think about this? And he'd say, come on, we've got to get this mob drafted, you know, but we'll talk about it later on. Yeah, Later on never happened. So, And a lot of people would, would leave the farm because the questions weren't answered.
0: And, and that's something um, attracting the next generation in. And I remember uh, it was when I was at Marcus, so oh, I reckon it was 2014, and I was doing a... We had to do a multimedia project um, and presentation, and the topic i choose was how do we how do we get more young people or the important No, I think it was the importance of young people to your business but also to your community. And I came out here and did a video with yourself, Ed, and a few others, and... Um, But how how have you guys gone in attracting young people into your business and being able to open up those opportunities for you ultimately to step away?
1: Up until COVID, it was generally pretty easy. Uh, I don't think we've had really any problems, but the last two years have been shocking. I mean, I'd have six or seven mates looking for the same person, really. They they want a middle manager. Um, We've had good success employing people who have had no experience. And, uh, and I think that's going to be – we're looking for a person here now and I think we're probably going to have to look at somebody who has experience in management and wants to be in agriculture. Mm-hmm. So and, – and I think a lot of farmers should start to think like that and, and take on board that they need to train them. Um, and I think they'll end up with some pretty fantastic people, which will – and the, those people will see things that we're not
0: seeing so what are the characteristics of the person? It's not even the future person, future middle manager in agriculture. It's attitude. Everything else can be learned.
1: Everything, virtually everything else. The ability to, um, even the ability to step up, you know, and and put in those extra, that extra little bit can be taught. If you're working for somebody who does that in themselves, it doesn't take long before you're running to open a gate and... yeah. Well if you don't run to open the gate you're probably not going to be working there so I was about <laughs> you know. to ask
0: what's the best piece of advice you yeah. <laughs> you've been given and I reckon that running to open the gates right up there with uh, things If that you're I've going for a job help.
1: interview and the, and the farmer takes you for a, a run around the farm run and open the gate <laughs>
0: <laughs> First impressions. that's the people and, and I think that's a fascinating thing because as you're saying it it's it's in I'd say even in corporate AG the areas that I've been in finding these people who are coming through there's a real deficit kind of in all areas at the moment and it's hard. Um, but being able to show people that it – like to be on a farm and be a farmer and be a manager on a farm, like it's not necessarily that you have to have grown up on it, let alone worked in it, I think. No, I, I
1: totally agree. And I think a lot of the corporates probably realise that and are probably are taking on, you know, more people than we, whereas, you know, um, farmers that have been in the game for a long time, family farmers, Um one of the other things I didn't mention about the teams here, though, one of the first things I say to the guys once they come on board is that you never make money out of wages; it's only what you do with them. And so I do encourage people to save and invest, and and you know if they possibly can, lease some country nearby. I'm very positive about getting them to see what it's like actually making decisions for their own their own land so then they realise that the decisions we make here are not they're not sort of made up in the middle of the night well let's go and do this it's actually we think about them we plan them and then we implement them
0: and then we monitor
1: them to make sure they have actually been fantastic it's been fantastic to see young guys that started with me go out and buy their own farm
0: yeah it's pretty exciting yeah it's something that like you've been able to do and we'll get talking more on the business side in a second but for, for me, I guess my aspirations have for a long while have been in stepping in and creating my own business. So how did you manage that yourself in terms of the, yeah, w- was the holy grail to run your own business or w- was that your side hustle and you were happy to keep it as your side hustle and this was your main thing?
1: The businesses off to the side were to, number one, to educate the kids at a school of my choice, mm-hmm. which I did. Um... Number two was to create a um, a safety net for Melinda and I, you know, in later life, um, which has happened. And probably number three, still we started to ramp it up a bit when Tom decided that he was going to come back on the land. So I reckon I've probably got. Tom's really worried about me coming home, you know, having managed, to, you know, both the family farms and and Mount Hess. He's worried that I. I said, Tom, 44 years of making making all the decisions, getting all the phone calls, you know, why does this happen, can we fix this, blah, blah, blah. I was thinking, I, I want to be, you know, the chairman, I don't want to be the decision maker. So I'm really, really looking forward to seeing the decisions Tom makes and, you know, how our family can grow our our own businesses. Um, get, getting back to that about how kids can set off, I, I took the team to see... Gordon Dickinson at um, Barrowmer and Noreen. And Gordon, he was an interesting one. We're at Marcus Alderman. I said to Gordon, what are you going to go up to? And he, What are you going to do? And he said, um, I'm going to give stockbroking a bit of a crack. And, and he did. And he eventually came back and bought these two beautiful properties. And he runs them extremely well. And I took the team up to see how a person runs... I think there's 60 or 70,000 DSCs, but it's a very simple, keep it simple operation. And it was great for Ed to see. But then the next person was Tim Leaming. And Tim Leaming started off with, a, with very few assets and has built quite a, an amazing business. He's a very good farmer. But to give the two 23 year olds an idea that here's a person who worked like buggery. Um, geared himself up and actually has achieved a bloody decent farm Yeah, that lots of people like to visit.
0: It's an interesting one. Like in my friendship circles, there's plenty of conversation around, yeah, it, I guess the pessimistic view is can a first-generation farmer start farming today? And I'd say yes, <laughs> There, there is ways, but it's, you've got to be smart, isn't it? And there's you've got to be, be smart
1: it. and you've got to think differently. As um, Nigel Kerran always says, you either can or you can't. If you think you can't, you never will. If you think you can, you know, it's, it just, and time's with you, you know, don't, you don't need it straight away. No, it's amazing. You don't need to have the big flesh cars and, you know, go on holidays overseas every year. you just got to do without that for a while.
0: Yeah. A little bit of sacrifice.
1: A little bit of sacrifice to get, the, you know, the people who have done it go on holidays overseas, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> they just have to wait until they're my age
0: well wow, and i think it, the balance is um, is in mm. that that patience but actually realizing that, that i can say this because uh, mm. i'm nearly 30 i'm out of my 20s in a minute dave mm. um, that yeah like it all of a sudden at 30 you're still or what I, 12 years into your career after school and you're still very young and learning a lot oh,
1: so. you're very young and it's and you've probably only sure. really realized what you're capable of and you know what your passions are and and whatever your passion is you should chase it simple as that the, the the other one about the young people starting off there's two sides of the business one's the land and one's the business mm-hmm. you've got to be good at both so you've got to choose your times you're going to buy and and run the business well because all you got to do is hang on to the land mm. just hang on to it time will take care of everything else
0: yeah I, I want to talk while we're talking about the business and the learning so you mentioned um the stager family Bought man house in two thousand and two, and you step. You're already managing the place, but then you began managing for someone else. And there's been a really interesting philosophy that Klaus and, and an outlook that Klaus brought to to the table for you, and that was around how you balance income over multiple years. H- how did his business approach kind of shift your thinking in terms of chasing the peaks and troughs of income and expenses and good seasons and bad?
1: Well, probably the second. Um Directors' meeting discussing the end of the financial year, you know how we've gone, and then the forecast for the following year. He, um, Mark Jordan Hill was my cropping uh, manager, and unfortunately, Mark's Mark's no longer with us. But um, Mark was was explaining to Klaus that the season hadn't gone quite well, and prices were down, and. You know, that would had a breakdown and, and so um, Klaus said to him immediately, he said, so this isn't your fault, is it? Is it my fault? And, then, and we all sat back and we thought he was getting a little bit aggressive but what, what, he wasn't, what he was doing was making a point that you shouldn't blame all the things that you think you have no control over. We should have made decisions to take into account the change in the weather patterns the soil types, the tractor implements, the type of fertiliser, you know, that's really analyse it and really stop making these excuses. And I think that was a really, really great learning experience for me. And I think, you know, most experienced managers know that. Yep. Uh, it's just nice to be reminded occasionally.
0: Have the, uh, the blinkers taken off.
1: <laughs> yeah. that Honestly, most things you are in control of.
0: And then um, as you look at, like the, the last few years for you, the photos show the development that have been on. But how – was it the passion for sheep that really drove you down this path of increasing numbers, changing the way you were using land across the business? Or what was really pushing and, and driving what I'd say this development sounds like a bad word, but the development of the, the farm – uh, that you guys have undertaken over the last decade or so?
1: Well, I'd probably take it all the way back to when I first started and we were pretty much the, uh, a typical Western District station with square, large square paddocks um, so there'd be swamps and stony rises and um, beautiful loamy soils and heavy black clays on the base and they were just big square paddocks. And it's a little bit of that going back. I made some really early decisions on on that custodian of the land. You know, I knew I wasn't going to be here that long managing it, but I wanted to make sure that I could do as much as I possibly did. So the first thing I did was I got Bill Sharp from uh, Branks Home to, to draw up a plan of the farm and, and we had – so you, you could – in those days you could get an aerial photo, but they had to piece them all together and they're quite expensive. And then we put – this was quite large, probably a metre by – metre and a half, and then we put plastic sheeting on it and I drew, I, I got the texas out and I put in all of the, um, the, where I wanted the, how I wanted the paddocks to be. We, we did a land class. Uh, I went and mapped all the land class areas on the farm, so all the different soil types, is six different soil types, and so I drew them in. And if you have a look at the farm today, it's pretty much based on those uh, segregating the soil types Second thing was, so we, so we tried to get all the soil types together. Then for what we could afford, we tried to lift pH, but a lot, of the, a lot of the country was full of rocks, so we couldn't get a lime spreader across it. So the next scenario with the crash in the wool price was to introduce cropping, so we cleared the rocks, used the crops to pay for it, um, lifted the pH on the cropping blocks, and then, in about two thousand and fourteen, so this was all happening. We we still had l- quite large paddocks. In Two thousand and fourteen, we decided to bite the bullet and just make it into a large merino property. Mm-hmm. Klaus was produ- he, You know, he's the largest wool spinner. Let's let's align ourselves. Align ourselves with them. They can use us for um, pressing home the point that they actually do produce merino wool, natural fibres. Blah blah blah, um, and so we we started so clear, still clearing, but only keeping the paddocks in for maybe two to at the maximum three years, and so that it's a it's a really simple system and it works really well. But um, so that's the development you see is all that rock clearing, and that allowed us to lift the pH and lift the carrying capacity. And now we're making the profits we're making and we have for quite some time now allowing us to do all the things I dreamed of doing, crushing all that rock to have blue metal on all of our roads, putting in, you know, large six metre cattle pits, redoing all the yards, updating the cottages. All those things we dreamed about, you know, have actually happened. So it's due to profitability, It's it, that's what it is and the pasture base is what caused it.
0: One thing I want to know off that is the time horizons you're looking at. So you're going back to late 80s, early 90s for that utopia of where you wanted to get to um, but then actually, so you had your, your big vision but then that operating piece. How, how did you break down your time horizons and kind of manage the the dreams versus the day-to-day reality? Well, the sort
1: of the day to day reality achieves the dreams. So, um, like, it was really interesting. When we we first started, there's an old character that works for us who you know, Lindsay Watt. (laughs) Lindsay's been around a lot of the sheds in the Western District now because he's 75 and still penning penning up for eight (laughs) and Like, he's a pretty amazing character. Um, Anyway, he always tells the stories about us pulling wires out of the old split posts, fences... And then we'd move them up, move them into the – to fence off a, a swamp or whatever and we had to align all the holes and, and then rethread the old bull wire back through again. And people say, oh, you're stupid, you know, you should have just borrowed some more money. But at that stage it was in a trustee estate and we couldn't borrow more money. You know, the, the dividends were paid out to the beneficiaries. And so it was they were really difficult times to, to actually get ahead. Um, but we did. And that's how we did it. You know it was not easy, but it it achieved the, the achieved the goals yeah. Over Make, time.
0: makes it a whole lot sweeter now.
1: yeah and and at the same time we were developing the pasture base in those you know the better areas, worked on the worked on the best areas first and then you know worked on the worst areas last. We're doing the hardest blocks right now. so that'll be a challenge for Ed. for the next <laughs> <laughs>
0: and that one across. I've got a couple of questions I want to wrap up on. Um, first one being around agriculture more broadly. What makes you optimistic about the future of Australian ag?
1: They don't make any more land, and you know, and that's that's an obvious one. Um, growing world population and a and a more wealthy uh, world population, and in Australia, we're, you know, if, I just love that. I, I love the grazing industry. There's a lot, of, a lot of talk about methane, et cetera, with grazing animals but it's, it's a, little bit, a little bit of BS because it's a cyclic gas and unless we're growing the whole herd or the whole flock, you know, the individual animals are fine and we've actually halved the flock of sheep in Australia so I'd say we've got a fair bit of methane out there that uh, we could probably increase it, double it, and we'd be better off than we were 50 years ago. So, in in saying that, I th- I think those questions with a little bit of time will be answered, and we won't be under so so much pressure. It's a lot. It's a lot of um, oil companies and manufacturers, etc., that are trying to shift the blame. I, do, I don't think it's it's right that they're doing it the way they're doing it. Um, the other one is um, grazing as against and this is getting back to the, the big picture, mm-hmm. um, but I just love standing in the middle of a field, listening to all the birds. You know, there's a lot of and, – and the insects and the, the bugs in the ground and, you know, what, seeing all the manure get turned over. I just love that. But if you stand in the middle of a crop, everything's been nuked. Like, everything. And I hated it. The chemical room was full I just um, I, I know there's a lot of people out there saying, so, "Well, you know, we're going to feed the world and stuff," and that's that's fine, and we do. And industrial agriculture is here to stay, but I I don't want to be a part of it, and um, you know, I'm trying to um, limit that because I think we'll have we'll have products to sell into the future that will be highly valued, just because of the way we farm.
0: We've um, a question I ask everyone on the podcast, and I know you listen to a few. Um, We've mentioned getting young people into ag, but for you, you get the chance to go to a Year 10 class and talk to them about why they should be considering a career in agriculture. What would be your advice to them?
1: Well, I think it's a pretty broad church, agriculture. Is it 96 or 97% of jobs are outside of the farm, outside the farm gate? So I would say that any field they would like to go into, whether it's, Um, medicine or um, agronomy or um, manufacturing, there'll be a place in agriculture. So I think it's more a a case of um, where they see themselves in life. You know, do they want to be living in a city trading grain or do they want to see themselves on the outer suburbs in a manufacturing plant or do they want to see themselves an agronomist you know, I think there's just such a huge – there always has been. Yep. People were warned off by their parents, so they went off to uni and became accountants and you know, had these wonderful lives, turning over bits of paper. <laughs> I just, yeah. just don't know how they do it, but anyway. Um, yeah, so, so I, I think uh, a year 10 students just – the world's their oyster.
0: Yeah. If they're
1: passionate, go for it.
0: And one other question I've got for you, and you get to ask a question. One thing I'm going to start introducing, you get the chance to ask a future guest, I'm not sure who it is, a question. What's a question you've got for a future guest on the Humans of Agriculture podcast?
1: Um, I'd say if, no matter who they are, whether they're in a in business or own a farm, what are you doing in your business to encourage young people to enter agriculture?
0: That's a good one. Thank you. Well, if you enjoyed this episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast, we would absolutely love for you to share it with a friend. We absolutely love sitting down with all our incredible guests and really enjoy seeing the engagement and the takeaways that different people have from the podcasts. I did get told that I need to give a better job up front of describing who our guests are and that's something I will really work on. I look to bring a bit of a personal angle into it as well, so... Thank you so much for listening again this week. Can't wait to see you next Wednesday. Look after yourselves. Stay safe. Stay sane. Have a bit of fun.